0: Hello everyone. Thank you for coming to today's Popular Culture Dialogue. I apologize it's not live. I am having some weird technical difficulties. My computer is really acting up and I need to figure out what it is. So I am legit on my phone right now. So yay for this technology. Um, But we're here today to talk about studying popular culture with a focus for today on the various ways to do that. So the hows of studying popular culture. With me are our three panelists, our three guests for today. Uh, Two are returning guests, and then we have a new guest. I think it's the first time for Ralph here. So actually, Ralph, I'm going to start with you. Could you introduce yourself to our audience?
1: Sure. Um, my name is Ralph Beliveau. I am on the faculty at the Gaylord College at the University of Oklahoma and I'm also, I, where I do media studies related stuff, I'm the area head for creative media production and professional writing, and I'm also affiliated with uh, women and gender studies and film and media studies.
0: Wonderful, and can, can you give us a sense as to like your general background, like how do you methodologically approach your research?
1: Um. <clears throat> well, there's, uh gosh there are so many different ways of kind of entering into it depending on what the context is and a lot of it i mean to be honest is driven by sort of like what is appropriate for whatever the next opportunity is whether it's a conference presentation or a publishing opportunity or something like that so um i just i'm just finished working on a chapter with a friend carl cedarholm at brigham young and we did a chapter about uh exploitation films uh, which was a great deal of fun, because there are hundreds of them. And for some reason, it's a subgenre. We, we actually use the Italian term Filone to talk about it. Uh, but it you know became an opportunity because there were some friends of ours who were doing a collection of essays about Jaws because it's the 25th or 100th anniversary of it or something like that. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's every time that shark movies look like they're about to disappear, they come roaring back. Um, a lot of them are what people would call bad um, but of course we know better we know that uh, so so anyway so that was an opportunity that presented itself um, and you know the approach in this was kind of a bricolage of looking at what was out there and determining what are the things that make this you know worth paying attention to and trying to figure out what it means both in terms of the culture consuming it and the people producing it I'm gonna so have to tell you her- sorry go ahead <laughs> oh that's okay no that's just kind of the rough outline of, of sort of an example of the most recent thing
0: wonderful i i was just gonna say i'm gonna have to tell my partner about that because he loves italian exploitation movies so it's right up his alley yeah
1: so, yeah.
0: so thank you for being here today
1: ralph sure. thank you then, for
0: having me. <laughs> of course and then gonna we'll go over to who's on my side here we're going to go over to aaron all the way on the other side of the world from me
2: Hi, i Erin Burrell. I am in Itearoa, New Zealand. So it's actually tomorrow for me. Um, I am a PhD researcher at Massey University. Uh, I'm a management scholar. So I'm actually coming at pop culture from more of a critical feminism perspective. Um, I use it to tell people the, the real life lessons that are available in it. Um, I think that especially as an equity, uh, researcher trying to make our world a little bit more inclusive we can learn a lot of lessons from it so i use it a lot um, in order to pull people in i think pop culture is that one thing that we can all um, kind of agree we all have something that we love in it and so when we start to find the thing that we love we can almost always find those morals and values and life lessons um, that i'd like to see people <laughs> implementing in the real world
0: so that's what i do wonderful thank you for being here again aaron and I always love having you here because it gives me hope that the world is still turning to know that you're in the future. <laughs> and then we're going to go over to Christopher in Germany.
3: Hello, my name is Christopher Zuzik. I'm a PhD candidate at Paderborn University in Germany. So it's uh, 9 p.m. here right now. And I'm my PhD thesis is about uh, Japanese metal music, and I approach it with uh, post-colonial concepts and a mixture of post-structuralist, phenomenology, aesthetics, and so on. And yeah, my, and this is, and I actually uh, studied uh, popular music and media. It's the the name of the um, program. So um, that's why I'm here. Wonderful, thank you, Chris. And
0: I I have a feeling I'm the one who may be the most quantitative of everyone here right now, but we can possibly get into that. Um, so let's then talk about this idea of popular culture, because as Aaron just said, and as Ralph has said, this idea of um, popular culture as a way to unite people, the idea of it being popular so that a lot of different people can, around the world really these days, can be interested in something and, and to find meaning in it, but how do we go about understanding all of that? What are the various ways that are commonly done for popular culture studies? What are ways that we have done? What are ways that we would love to do? Like if you could design any study with any research method, what would you do? So I kind of just wanted to start with those thoughts. I mean, how, how do we study popular culture? What are some common approaches
4: that you've used in the past?
1: Well, I guess I'll start. A lot of what I do is is um, textual analysis, um, you know, versus looking at um, the circumstances of production or the circumstances of consumption, um, which are which are equally important. Um, There's also, I think that, you know, part of what we do that's so valuable is to encourage kind of thinking about the contextualization for making sense out of popular culture at any particular moment. Because things become possible or impossible, depending on how the culture is changing, Um, there's been this vast change in terms of what kind of audience you need, for example, to produce television. Um, And it's fragmented and it's become much smaller so we're seeing things get made that in, in any previous you know, chunk of time would not have been made. And I'm thinking specifically of a show like Reservation Dogs, if any of you have had a chance Mm -hmm. to see that. Um, It's an amazing program. It's shot here in Oklahoma. It's distributed through FX and Hulu. And it's telling a story uh, that we don't ever usually see from people who don't usually get to tell the stories. So it's kind of, you know, an amazing time to be, you know, exposed to these kind of like really small niches of Mm -hmm. Um, of things, and then to be able to approach them from a number of different perspectives too, you know, as Aaron was suggesting, um, so that people can develop that contextualization and see how it connects to their their, their sense of politics, identity and power. Mm
2: -hmm. I think that power analysis is is probably my favorite place to live Um, (laughs) because I am always focused on equity. Um, I always end up coming back to this sort of logic of, you know, what was the story at the time? Um, you know, when we think about that context, we think about you know who were the writers, creators, funders. Who were the audience? Um, who are the audience today? And I love that um, pop culture gives us a lesson in hindsight. So mm-hmm. we have this this sort of opportunity to say, you know what that that wouldn't have you know reservation like Taiko ITD, I mean, the kiwiest as kiwi guy um, mm-hmm. is doing something that would have been niche a number of years ago and had he not had the the power the political capital and the social capital in the the media industry that still probably wouldn't be getting made so I think that there's these great stories and lessons we can learn about how power is shifting um, how the power of the audience is shifting you know like I was raised with you know Thursday night television where you know we we all watch the same two channels primarily um, and you you had that sort of experience and today now it's you know I can talk to somebody who is niche streaming uh, something that's up on YouTube and I can talk to somebody else who is madly in love with whatever dropped on Netflix for mass consumption and we have that opportunity to, to see how our world is shifting and I think you know to Rolf's point we've got this, this deep reach now because a lot of things are getting made finally um, with voices that I can't help but be extraordinarily excited to hear from.
1: Yeah, I think that the, the idea that it's also happening globally is, is really kind of a big deal too. There's so much better access to the media products of other places so that we don't have to, you know, sort of like think, oh, poor sad world has to consume nothing but American TV, (laughs) that there's all this other, you know, aesthetically very different stuff that we get access to now that, you know, again, it just, it it makes it for a much richer experience in popular culture.
4: And Chris?
3: I think um, I, I agree with both of you with beginning to uh, or starting to analyze or to study a phenomenon is to start by contextualize it historically and socially first before we can dive deeper into the analysis i would say maybe and uh, i think this is also already a big chunk of uh, material to um yeah, you know, to get into popular culture and to study and how to make sense of, of it, I would say. The first
0: is Yeah, and it it kind of comes back to this idea, and I think we've talked about this on a previous dialogue about you know where does popular culture start? Is it with the the text, that thing that humans have created and imbued with meaning, or does it start with the I guess the contextualization around it, which could be the power, the production of it, depending on if it's, you know, Hollywood and large corporations or if it's something smaller and more local, but then there's also the reception of it. So does popular culture studies, do you think it focuses on the text analysis aspect more or, or is it more balanced across essentially those three areas?
3: I think there are these two paradigms and um that are creating this divide but I don't think but I think we should deconstruct this divide because both goes hand in hand I think Um, so the textual analysis and the contextual analysis.
2: Yeah I think especially when we're, we're considering a wider landscape of media um you've got those niches that are happening right now. Mm-hmm. So um, Auckland is just coming out of a lockdown probably. Um, in comparison, I know y'all have a very different experience of what COVID has looked like. Um, we lost one person in this outbreak and it was a really big deal to the country. So. Mm-hmm. My context for COVID is very different again. Um, but there is a TikTok movement running around right now here where people are going outside and screaming Kia Kaha, which is um, Tadeo for Be Strong. And it's just you'll see these mashups. And if you start to go onto NZ Twitter at all, you'll you'll definitely see these like four, eight seconds of somebody just going outside in their backyard garden and screaming Kia Kaha. And When I think about that, I think about that sort of that that movement to media as a support network, as Mm -hmm. comfort, as safety, as camaraderie. Like we've got a lot of different ways that we can connect now and we can connect across borders and space and time. I mean, right now we are literally covering three continents, Mm -hmm. Um, but but that ability for us to find connection, current content or in retro content. We've got you know a hundred years of content now uh, that we can dive into across cultures, languages, formats. So we're sort of in this this window of meta-narrative that we can keep diving back in and and re-experiencing, I guess maybe um recontextualizing um, Mm. all of this content with our new life and our new lenses. So I think we're just in this this place where connection and content consumption and creation is just much bigger than it's ever been which gives us a chance to do a lot more quant things quite honestly <laughs> uh, you know in 1960 we probably couldn't have done you know a meta-analysis on everything that had been on television mm-hmm. because there was only you know a handful of things created now we've got entire movies being shot on a smartphone so mm-hmm. our our
1: our volume of media is so much bigger now. Yeah. I, you know, I was gonna suggest that one other way of thinking about a starting point, and I'd, I'd be really interested in how in how others of you kind of think about this problem, but the, the impulse toward narrativization, toward sort of wanting things in the world to be stories and wanting to consume them, that has such an effect on how these things get constructed And it's a little, I mean, maybe a little too weirdly metaphysical, but it's almost like we're built to to do that. We're built to produce those things and consume those things and even think of our own pasts and futures in these like narrative structures. And so popular culture just kind of feeds the, the, the hunger for that so powerfully all the time. And, you know, again, like you're suggesting, you know, in an increasingly global way. Um, so I just think that that whole kind of story impulse is a really kind of difficult to kind of figure where the origin is from, but it's really a, a definitive way of thinking about how we're interacting with this media we're surrounded by.
0: Well, and, and I think it's interesting, too, because everything that you're all just saying demonstrates the, of course, complexity of, of this, which when we're dealing with anything human constructed, I think we we recognize the complexity of it. Because it, we do want to understand, you know, the text, what's in the text, how it got to be in the text, what it says about the context, how people are responding to it, um, how it's being used now, maybe in comparison to the past. And there's so much to, to um, ferret out or pick out. How do you, when you're approaching a new study? how do you determine where to start with all that complexity? How how do you narrow it down so that you're looking at something that's manageable to look at within one study? So for something I'm working on right now, uh, I was struck by
2: one, I'm gonna say probably eight seconds in a current popular film. Like just like one sort of fourth wall breaking moment in a film and it sort of caused me to do, I'm gonna call it idea vomit, like just streaming pages of notes of what, what does this mean? And, and you know, why did that, like of whatever 102 minute film, why did that section, why did that strike me as, as something that's important? And when I actually started to kind of, I'm gonna say, ask myself why that mattered to me, I found the, the thread in the story of what I was actually investigating. Um, and I think pop culture gives us that in a way um, that those stories that, that are at the core of who we are, those myths and legends and whatever, that are way older than than recorded media, um, they give us a chance to match up to our current time or our an experience we've had as a human. Um, and that when I had that sort of that eight seconds, when I pulled it apart, I had kind of like this. I don't know. I had probably four thousand words of why it mattered to me. All of a sudden, and then now I'm actually turning it into an article that will be digestible by real humans. But (laughs) it was just asking for me, at least. It often starts with why did that thing strike me before I can before I can say okay, well, this is going to be you know socially constructed analysis that I'm going to use a particular lens and a particular theory. Um, I feel like, I guess, as a pragmatist, I'm about using the tool that's right for the question that I'm asking. Mm -hmm. So for me, at least I had to get to why was I, why did this matter to me and why was I asking the question before I could choose a tool to do the analysis with it?
3: I think my approach is kind of similar uh, from a phenomenological perspective just to when i listen to a song or i watch the music video i get into the experience and i don't need the whole song because most of the time uh, it's like you said at the beginning the intro that already um, sets a mood for the further continuation of the song for the music video and then I'm also reflecting about um, the data, I would say, um, that are coming in and to reflect on them and just to get rid of first of all the dispositions, or, or I try to get rid of all the dispositions I have and um, just to, to look what is happening here and what is my experience now that I'm uh, having right now while listening to this particular song and um, I had it recently that I uh, uh, found a new band and uh, the music video just blew me away and um, I directly incorporated into a a presentation for a a conference and and I hope uh, the others were also blown away because that was my point um, when it comes to aesthetics and um, f- phenomena, or popular culture phenomena in particular, um, these disruptions in your senses, in your sensibilities, and shifts that uh, we are experience, um, I think every day. Not only, it, it, it. I think this experience was kind of um, big, but I think um, if you engage into popular culture, you don't these. Um, Disruptions don't have to be that big or a change in your worldview. It it can be uh, tiny little things. Um, Maybe watch a new movie, for example. I don't know, like the Star Wars transition from episode eight to episode nine. And I think for for some people, it uh, it has been a a big change, a big disruption in their sensibilities and worldviews, but not for me. So... um, This is also the the interesting part, how this experience differs from
4: person to person. Yeah, one of the
1: things I was gonna mention that a lot of this connects in in my experience and with what I do as a teacher to media literacy as kind of a source of power um, through the exploration of what these things mean and, and kind of thinking in a dialogic way about how we're interacting with those things, how other audiences are, are interacting with it, what accounts for its importance in culture. Um, I find like, whether it's Jaws or Star Wars, these things that just had this enormous cultural impact. I, it's almost like you never have satisfactory answers for why, you know, why that when it happened. I mean, you, you come up with answers that are, can be anything from kind of the shallow, well, it made a lot of money to, um, it was like the right story at the right time, but it's sort of like getting that unique understanding of why something works and resonates in culture the way that it does. And in some cases it takes, you know, maybe decades to figure that out uh, of trying to see you know when context changes. You know how. What are its legs? How long is it going to last? What's its power? Um, how's it? And and is there a way of talking about it that actually then for students or for the for the audience allows them to gain more control over the meanings they take out of the popular culture they are consuming?
0: And it's, what's interesting is right now. So I'm hearing there's this idea of it's something that interests you because it impacts you personally on some level, or you're seeing, um, disruption impact on a cultural, social, communal level. Um, but I'm also hearing it's, 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 you know, there's like these positive affects attached to it that you don't really study something that has a negative impact on you. And this is maybe something I'm wondering now about popular culture, because, I think when we think about popular culture and um, its association with like fandom, for example, we tend to focus on the positive affect. Something wouldn't be popular if it wasn't doing something positive for the people engaging with it. But do you ever find that you approach the study of something because of the negative affect associated with it? I do. Because there, there's lots of, well,
2: across content, there there is a lot of racism and misogyny and ableism and hate, I, I generally. Um, and because that's what I spend a lot of my time on, um, I'm always, I see it um, quite sharply in a lot mm-hmm. of the things that I'm doing. Um, and one of the things that I find And maybe it's the thing that makes popular culture so magical is that when I'm struggling to find a way to convey a complex idea, especially in a teaching environment, Mm -hmm. um, the easiest way is to remind people of a story that they're already familiar with. So it it gives me something to like a string to pull on for the uncomfortable things. And it also gives me... um, in that teaching environment, an opportunity to let students know why it might have made them uncomfortable, because sometimes we don't, um, and I think that, that that returns to, I think it, Ralph said, you know, the media literacy, but it returns to when we feel like popular culture is a valid form of something more than just escapism and entertainment, it gives us a chance to actually say, you know, there's life lessons in here, and there is, you um, our ability to um, interrogate it and ask questions of it can actually be quite a lot bigger. And students, because they, they are earlier in their journey in a lot of cases, haven't yet been empowered to know that they have reach in theory, right? Theory is scary and messy. And most theorists, in my experience, love the big juicy words when you know, the simpler term would have been more accessible to more people. Um, but when we're when we're dealing with those those things, all of a sudden, seeing nine out of twelve points of a theory play out in a movie or a video or a song, it tells you that story, and it empowers the students to to find it for themselves. So for me, especially with messy things, I I can use that that trigger that content warning of you know yes, this, this movie did make you uncomfortable or um, this scene in a comic did make you feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And here's probably why. Here's what it is actually a representation of. And then all mm-hmm. of a sudden they can sort of jump in and, and find their feelings um, in the midst of often our feelings, at least for me, our feelings grow when we're having that dialogue. Being able to use our words and to articulate it, I think, is really powerful. Pop culture gives us a lot of words that we can use because we can use those shortcuts of the stories.
1: Yeah, I was just going to mention I do a lot of work in horror, which sort of has built into it. You know, it's it's automatically uncomfortable. Um, you know, one one could argue from a certain point of view it's not uncomfortable. You don't get it yet. Um, you know, it's supposed to. It's I, I I've been you know having more and more interesting conversations with people who like don't do horror. They're like, I can't do that, it's, I, can't, it's, I can't depersonalize it, I can't be separated from it, it's too much, it's overwhelming and I just feel such a level of anxiety that I don't wanna deal with it. And I think that's a really, you know, it's an interesting thing to try to understand, like what is the difference between people who are fascinated by it, intrigued by it, engaged by it and the people who, you know, because you've got things like, you know, true crime media, which has just exploded, um, and you know there's, so these the connections between things that happen in the world and fictional storytelling that are kind of by their very nature, discomforting. And, there's, and and so again, it's kind of like an intriguing object to try to figure out, well, what is it that makes people attracted to those experiences, um, even when they recognize some of the social and political and cultural problems uh, with a particular mode of storytelling. Um, because then there's also usually they're broad enough uh, where there are also responses to that that are already built into you know the the genre or the, or the storytelling form. Um, so I think it's it's interesting to think about discomfort in in terms of that context.
3: Well, that's interesting. Um, I'm I'm analyzing um, cuteness in Japanese popular music, and it has also this notion of uncanniness, I would say, and what I mean with disruption um, um, is more a neutral notion, I would say, not necessarily positive, but it can also be negative in a way. So because my argumentation, for example, is that these groups who use um, this uncanniness um, side of cuteness um, play with this disruption to um, deconstruct the notions people have and to make them um, uncomfortable so it's a strategy in this in this context and this is i think why we also have to analyze the context in that sense
0: and i also find it interesting because right now we're talking about things that make us uncomfortable but i'm also interested in the popular culture that maybe has a negative impact on society or culture overall but there are people who embrace it and it doesn't make them uncomfortable whatsoever because if it did, it wouldn't be popular to them. So that's why I'm looking at things like QAnon and and I'm curious more about like alt-right and um, well, even white supremacist popular culture. Do you think popular culture studies needs to do more to understand popular culture from different people's perspectives about what makes it popular to them, even if it's not something that makes us, you know, comfortable in
4: any way, shape or form. I do.
2: Um, I'm working on a piece on uh, rape culture,
4: Mm
2: -hmm. um, which is super uncomfortable. Um, And But it is, it's a, a thing that it's a common trope in a lot of our content that we consume and there's a reason that it's being used. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if we don't, if we don't talk about it, um, we can't do anything about the, the reflection that that content has, especially in some of our,
0: um,
2: some of the, the globally angry groups. Mm. I'm not going to pick on any particular one, but you know, the idea of, rape submission and power Mm -hmm. um, are are pretty common in a lot of um maybe societally excluded groups so um while it's really yucky um in terms of analysis for me personally um and it definitely will be it is uncomfortable for a lot of people i think it's important content for us to to interrogate sometimes um, however this one piece has taken a really long time because I can only sort of face into it for short periods of time mm-hmm. and I think that that's that's one of those those hazards of dealing with something that um, is uncomfortable for you as a person and you know that it's going to be uncomfortable like dealing with trauma studies is um, it's hard and yes there is a lot of comfort content that I have to consume in between. <laughs> rounds of edits um because it's just it's just really messy uh, but that's that's my perspective at least
4: mm-hmm.
3: yeah i also wrote i just wrote in um, a paper on the suicide of idols in korean popular culture and uh, i think i have a similar experience while writing it um as you do because it's really hard to to get into these topics and to, um, yeah, to make sense of it, kind of, as a researcher. But so do everyday people, not only researchers, but um, fans mm-hmm. do as well, and not only fans, but also um, the public who gets to know about these um, suicides of celebrities, but also um, they put it into perspective with their own experiences maybe. And um, I think this is a continuous process of um, an individual person to, um, yeah, just to make sense of these uh, experiences, news. And um, I would say, yeah, from an aesthetic perspective, also aesthetic disruption in this sense. Mm Yeah. I mean oh go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: No, I was just gonna say, and I imagine with topics like those, there's also the ethical moral issues too, as to how you as the researcher represent that, both in terms of representing the the people and their lives that have been negatively negatively impacted, but also to not at all try to like valorize or glamorize or you know feed into that idea that by talking about it, we are in some way supporting it.
1: Yeah, there's a, there's this very weird tension, you know, with the, as I'm sure you all experienced the distribution of uh, violence against black men, black women um, in the U.S. and in other places um, that were important for being able to, you know, basically demonstrate an idea about what was happening between, you know, the, the state and, and people and oppression. At the same time, it got to this, it, it did get to this point where it was sort of like becoming um, the only representations of black bodies. And so it ends up having this toxic effect on the black community because it's like, uh, I don't know I'm sure you've all, you're all aware that at a time people consumed lynching postcards. It was a very popular thing for people to collect. And it's, you know, not, it's, it's really appalling to think about that. But in some ways, these these videos of people being, of, of people suffering at the hands of state force, you know, can have the same dehumanizing effect to so the group that it's, so, so the, it ends up having this really like polarizing popular culture effect. Um, Mm -hmm. that I think needs to be talked about so that people have some sense of that it's worth thinking about and interrogating. Are you traumatizing yourself by looking at this Mm -hmm. or are you traumatizing other people by redistributing it as people Mm -hmm. tend to do?
0: And maybe to, to come back to something Christopher said back at the beginning, this idea of deconstructing the divide between the ways of approaching popular culture, would, would being able to approach popular culture subjects from a variety of perspectives, would it help with maybe some of these ethical issues or with these issues of representation, with these issues of how our research can actually impact popular culture if we were to be both critical and more objective when at least when it comes to quantitative um, studies? I think. There is something that's that's kind of
2: fantastic that happened that's happening in popular culture that isn't happening in all disciplines,
0: which mm-hmm. is there's
2: a lot more um, clear, simple writing and a lot more mm-hmm. accessible content. So I have you know the natural rage for open access content. Um, it doesn't cost very much to host things on a website. Why is every article worth thousands of dollars of subscriptions each year? Um, But I think that that makes um, theory and interrogation of these themes something that more people can actually get their hands on. I think if we only keep the interrogation in the academy, we are failing, Um, Mm -hmm. especially with something that is based and and founded in the magic of of fandom. And I try Mm -hmm. not to interrogate anything that I'm a big fan of because I don't want to tear my loves apart. Um, I like to I like to interrogate things that I'm on the periphery of like I like them but I don't love them um, just because I don't want to ruin I don't want to tear my own heart out. Um, but I think as we make things more accessible and especially as um, the conversations about what analysis is um, is accessible to other people, um, I, I think we can actually have a much better conversation because pop culture is made by, humans. Um, The academy um, tends to be this sort of closed loop network that we never have conversations with regular humans. Um, And I think it's real humans and real dialogue that actually helps us influence change. Maybe the content that's being made, maybe the way we, um, the way we question a trope, you know, like we've, we've all seen the jump the shark conversation, but, you know, maybe some of those tropes could die a nice natural death and we'd never see them again. Um, and that would be at least in my opinion, pretty okay. I think we've got creativity, um, enough to create new tropes.
0: (laughs) But, and Aaron, it it also makes me think about this again, coming from fan studies, but I think it also, like you're saying, applies to popular culture, the idea that you don't want to study what you love and, the big discussion about like ACRA fans and fan scholars and and how you try to balance that. And I'm just thinking of my own research and I don't do as much text analysis because I like talking to people and understanding how they make sense of it. And I know in fan studies, we do have people who study the fan communities that they're part of. So do you think that if you were to study the fandoms around the objects that you love, do you think you could be more objective or, or, would that be more comfortable to you in that situation? For me, I think I'd get more judgy. Um, <laughs> well, because we,
2: the, content comes to us at a time that we need it, I believe. I believe that we read that book the time we need it. We hear that song the time we need it. Uh, we see that film or watch that show at the time we need it. And we don't always know why we love it. We don't know, always know why it makes us feel great. You know, my partner's favorite film of all time is Aliens. It is the film that they take long haul flights and fall asleep to on planes with. Um, Cool. Not for me. I like Aliens. I could happily tear that movie apart, tear the entire (laughs) series apart. No problem, because it is not the thing that I love. I will never understand why my partner loves it the way they do. Um, And I actually don't think that's for me to do. I feel. Mm -hmm. I feel like. um, I feel like I'd have nightmares if I fell asleep on a plane. uh, To Sigourney Weaver, but that's just me. Um, But it does. Like I naturally judge that choice, and I feel like if I if I spent too much time in fan studies, I would get very judgy of something that somebody loves for reasons that maybe I'm not going to have the opportunity to properly interrogate um, Mm -hmm. and understand. Because that's that's you know the sense making somebody else has made of something they love, um, is often really pretty deep and complex.
1: I just it's I just come to like accept my own hypocrisy, as just part of you know, that uh, so. You know, in classes, one of the first things I usually do with groups of students is to get them to stop talking about, I liked it, it was good, I didn't like it, it was bad, because those are, and they're very important, but they're very important also to be able to go away from so that you can talk about all the other important stuff in popular culture. But then there's a point in the semester where I usually have to give what I, what I refer to as my paragraph on the wire which is The Wire is the best television show ever made. If you start watching it and you don't agree with that, the problem is not with the show. The problem is with you. Go try again. It's a complete contradiction of everything I said previously, right? About using those kind of judgments. But but you can't, I've been trying, Stuart Kaminsky taught me about this like decades and decades ago, and I've never been able to, you can't stop. I like it. I didn't like it. But, you know, the trick is to not make that kind of the, the start of the conversation, you know, because there's so much other important stuff going on that's worth talking about once you can kind of leap over those things and, you know, begin to explore how other people make sense out of it. Yeah,
0: I, I think that's that's interesting, this idea of don't start the conversation with like, don't like. I'm going to ponder that as, as a person who likes to ask fans and, and people those types of request, uh, reception right.
3: questions. Yeah. Sorry, Chris. <laughs> um, I actually analyze what I love. So, um, but I when I get into conversations, I, I look at the context with whom I'm talking to and is it at university or is it with friends or other fans? And um, I um, cater to that context, so um, I, I switch my my positions and I try to um, when I talk with fans I try to um, turn down the scholar in me and just to yeah embrace the aesthetic experience of um, what we are seeing together and yeah get into the aesthetic um, experience okay but i, I want
0: to understand that then chris so when you're saying you turned on the scholar in you what does that mean
3: um first don't talk like a scholar don't use these fancy words and concepts and i don't know um it's 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 a different habitus i would say maybe that we can um adapt to like a fan Mm -hmm. habitus and a scholar habitus and um, well okay so um, I think we can we can't can't fully um, turn it off but Mm -hmm. um, to a certain degree just don't talk like someone or don't talk or don't use that vocabulary um, Mm -hmm. don't behave a certain way um, Mm -hmm. um, or don't Now I use the the negative forms, but act like uh, in a certain way that um, people also understand that you are part of that community, maybe in that sense.
0: Well, and and the reason I ask is because I I, teaching this to students and I know sometimes within the general public, too, when you say that you do criticism and critical analysis and, and things like that there's that perception, of course, critical equals bad, that you're, you're seeing something as bad and you're taking it apart. But we're not talking about turning down our criticism or deconstruction or, or things like that. We're just talking about putting it in a different framework for saying it or how communicating it. Because at, at, at the heart of, I would say, popular culture study is whether it is Text analysis, looking at production, consumption, or whatever aspect—it's all being critical, right? We're, we're still trying to understand why things are the way they are. We just have to maybe figure out how to communicate that more. I think I think it's a terminology game, and I think Christopher mm-hmm. makes a really good point: is
2: there's a difference between criticism and curiosity, and. Mm-hmm. When I'm talking to students specifically, I tend to ask them, you know, why does this bother you, make you happy, add joy, whatever. And that curiosity is the, it's at the heart of critical analysis. Ripping something to shreds requires a lot of why questions and a lot of um, hows and shoulds and all of those sort of um, queries. But when when we approach it from, you know, I can remember the first time I did like a post-mortem on a film with a bunch of friends at about, you know, 16 or 17 years old. It's like, I hated that film and they loved it. and I couldn't figure out what it was that they'd loved about the film. And in hindsight now I just didn't understand and needed to see it again. It's cool. Um, but I think asking the, why did you love it? What, you know, and, and that, that gives us the opportunity to have the question about, you know, it was the, the coloration, right? Coloration is one of my favorite things about film. Um, it was the light, it was the the quick one-liners of the, the actor, whatever the, the case might be. Um, those are, that gives us the chance to be doing the critical analysis without um, the elitism or the snobbery. Mm-hmm. And I think to Christopher's point, when you're talking to somebody who just loves a thing, um, asking them why they love, or somebody who hates a thing, honestly, mm-hmm. asking them why and kind of diving in and, and kind of pulling that out through curiosity instead of um, the traditional critical tools um, gives us a little bit more of a, a not scary
4: academic spin on it.
1: Yeah, I was, well, I was just gonna add, I think one of the interesting things is that the term, as we've all probably experienced the term critical, Criticism, you know, the root, whatever, has kind of two valences, right? It's got a valence that's that that uh, is positioned anyway as inquiry without judgment, without a, mm-hmm. you know, without kind of a lot of theoretical junk in the in the load, and then there's critical that is really very political, um, and importantly so. <clears throat> um, so you know, understanding, you know, sort of like when's the right time or place to pick which version of, of critical you're gonna go with, whether it's appropriate for an audience, you know, because, you know, last thing I wanna do in a class is just alienate someone over some, you know, peripheral political ground when there's still a lot to be done in terms of understanding whatever it is that we're watching together and talking about. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's just so much more productive things that can happen. And that's not to say, I mean, I think the politics are critical, <clears throat> the the the, polit- the critical politics are critical right that's yeah so um but that's but but that's you know kind of for me anyway that's kind of the if there is a hidden agenda it's the hidden agenda is to help people become more critical in and of themselves for themselves for their own ability to have as much control as they can over the meanings they take out of what they consume mm-hmm. um, and just even understanding that there can be varied. So you can go see a movie and hate it and talk to people and then decide later you like it. And then 10 years later, go revisit it and hate it again. And, you know, again, those I think embracing those hypocrisies can be really powerful uh, because then we start understanding how those experiences evolve as we do, too.
0: So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Recognizing that things change, we change, I think would be a great thing for everyone to have because it seems... That might not be something people understand as well, and the idea, and I like this idea of embracing hypocrisy because I've always hated hypocrisy, but I think what I hate is people who knowingly engage in hypocrisy just because it helps them maintain their power.
1: Maybe that's what I hate more. Well, I mean, that partially grew in my thinking out of uh, having been, um, um, I don't know what the right term, having been fooled by the media Mm. at some point and realizing, you know, if you want to start with War of the Worlds, or you want to talk about Blair Witch Project, or, you know, some musical group that turned out to be Phony Baloney or whatever, that that being taken, I actually reached a point where it's kind of fun, right? Because if you thought about having been taken, you understood things about the assumptions that were being made about you as an audience member, and the assumptions you were making about the experience. And so it was sort of like, yeah, I was a total fool. And it was really cool. And here's why, you know, because then it you know, kind of opens out um, and, and tells us a lot about ourselves and the assumptions that we build into our media consumption.
0: Well, just as a side note, Ralph, yeah, you know, I think you and I have to talk professional wrestling at some point.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. What's the term that they used to? KFAB. KFAB, yeah. A KFAB, yeah. One of my favorite new words that I just learned a few years ago. <laughs> it's, just, it's, just, it's like a whole world-changing term. <laughs> It's fantastic.
0: Um, so we have to get into the wrap up mode here. So I just kind of want to ask one last question and get your each of your thoughts on it. So if you were, you know, wonderfully faced with an undergrad student who loves popular culture and really wants to get into popular culture studies, is there a particular approach to studying popular culture that you would recommend they start with?
4: I think
2: text analysis is a great place to start Mm -hmm. um, because it it works in regardless of your media format. So you can really break things down. Um, I think as they get deeper into their questions, they're going to ask a lot more broadly and sort of, you know, how deep does the rabbit hole go? But I think text analysis um, empowers us because we have, you know, the movie script or, whatever um, tool we're working with and we can then dive deeper um, as well it, it fits into a lot of other periphery communication studies um, mm-hmm. like journalism or creative writing or any of those other pieces which means that if we're giving I, I really like multipurpose skills so if mm-hmm. we're giving a student some skills we should give them something that fits in multiple places if possible.
0: and interestingly the the text is perhaps the most objective object in popular culture studies if you think about it because it's something that we can all obtain and analyze i suppose
1: i you know the, one thing that that and i completely agree with you i think textual analysis is probably in some ways an and and an e- a really efficient starting point I've done a lot of work with students having them like produce things that involve interviewing people about Mm -hmm. popular culture topics. And, you know, whether it's in a journalistic mode or a documentary mode or something like that, because then they have to account for how they use the tools and how they understand the power relationship between the person asking the questions and the person giving the answers. And, you know, just kind of that collection process can offer a good opportunity to have, you know, conversations with people about popular culture tech to get them to kind of open up about the things they're passionate about.
4: It can be really revealing. Yeah,
3: I agree with that too. Um, I also started with textual analysis even before I started studying um, just to, because of curiosity of the, of what I love. And so I think, yeah, you don't have to be a scholar to um, get into textual analysis even then so that's a good starting point
0: don't have to be a scholar but hopefully it inspires a scholarship in you and I don't think we we want you know everyone in the world to become scholars because we need a lot of other different types of things going on in the world but having everyone with that curiosity that creative thinking that self-reflection and that reflective thinking maybe that's one of the benefits for studying popular culture these days getting all of those types of skills well i want to thank you all for for coming and, and bearing with my technology i get to go into two more zoom meetings now and see if my computer you know flips out on me or anything but thank you for being here today and i'm I think there's a lot of great things to mull over and I know I'm going to be thinking more about them and I hope you will as well. And we'll see you on the next one.
4: Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Bye.